Welcome to Mind Love, episode 21. Today's episode is about the power of mental pattern disruption and short bursts of meditation. The more frequently that we interrupt the old subconscious programming, the more effective we can be at changing the thought patterns that are really the basis of what's happening in our exterior lives. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends. I have a treat for you today. One of my most listened to episodes is episode 15, The Secrets of Resilience with Cheryl Hunter. Cheryl introduced me to Dina Proctor, who is our guest today. She's the creator of the 3x3 Meditation Method and best-selling author of a book called Madly Chasing Peace, How I Went from Hell to Happy in Nine Minutes a Day. After hitting her emotional rock bottom, she kind of unintentionally created a process called 3x3 Meditation, which is three minutes, three times a day. It enabled her to transform every aspect of her life from weight loss and banishing addictive cravings to reconstructing relationships. This simple but incredibly effective method has even gained the support of Jack Canfield and Dr. Bruce Lipton. If you don't know who they are, they're kind of a big deal and we'll cover it in this episode, so don't worry. Dina now helps thousands of people around the world transform their lives, so I'm super stoked to have her in our inner circle today. Three key things we will learn are how our preconceived notions of what we should be doing are getting in the way of our own growth, the science behind why these shorter bursts of meditation are so effective, and three tips for creating an individual practice that not only works, but is also sustainable. But before we welcome Dina to the show, I want to invite you all to sign up for the Morning Mind Love. You get short daily reminders of your own beauty, worth, and power, so you start each day with a positive mindset and keep your vibes up between episodes. To sign up, all you have to do is visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First off, you get our Powerless booklet. It's a free booklet that's based on proven principles from the most successful people and some of our favorite guests. Plus, you get a free guided affirmation meditation set at the miracle tone of the solfeggio scale. If you don't know about it, it's basically a specific tone that's said to help you attract love, health, and abundance. We're all energy, so learning to work with our frequencies can be very powerful. Listeners have been absolutely loving the Morning Mind Love, by the way. My listener of the week, Ashley, said that the Morning Mind Love is so sweet and really does make me feel good enough and beautiful and motivated. So thank you so much for that, Ashley. So just head to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Dina Proctor to the show. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. I'm really looking forward to our to our little chat. <laughs> In your story, you had to reach a bottom before you even knew there was something to climb your way out of. What was that rock bottom and how did you get there? 
in 2008, when I started going through this kind of, you know, amazing transformation, I had, I was in my early thirties and I had spent my twenties in and out of clinical depression. In my early twenties, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And I believe that I could have been diagnosed with that in college and probably even in high school. Like I was just always had what I call this emotional black hole inside of myself. Um, and I, in my twenties, you know, going to different doctors and therapists and group therapy and one-on-one therapy and different medications, even experimental medications that weren't on the market yet. Like I was trying everything to, um, try and heal from this clinical depression and from the anxiety that I had. And I was, you know, moving around a lot too. I was changing jobs and changing boyfriends and getting new cars, like anything to try and fill that hole inside of myself. And as I kept moving around and making all these changes and trying all these things, nothing was hitting the mark and it would frustrate me and get me into an even deeper depression in my later twenties, you know, after years of trying to do something about this and nothing working. I discovered alcohol and, um, you know, I had drank a little bit in the past. It's not like I'd never drank anything, but I never needed the, I guess, solution in a a really messed up way, but that the solution that alcohol provided for me, that numbing quality, that total escape from reality. Um, I became, when I started drinking, um, in my later twenties, I became alcoholic within, I'm sure just a matter of weeks or months. Like it really, caught on to me quickly and took me down um, that quickly. Like I had constant alcohol in my bloodstream for two or three years straight. And during those years, you know, after trying to fix my depression and trying everything that I could to, um, you know, heal and, and then becoming an alcoholic, like I couldn't believe that I couldn't fix my life. I was a straight A student. You know, I was smart. I had made everything that I wanted to happen in my life. I had done all of that. And I couldn't believe that, first of all, I couldn't stop drinking. And second of all, that I couldn't dig my way out of depression. And I was going to bed every night crying and just saying, you know, like, if I don't wake up in the morning, that's really okay with me. You know, like, it just it just didn't seem like anything would ever get any better. Um, and after being an alcoholic for a couple of years, I was doing things that I couldn't even imagine myself doing. Um, you know, like I was stealing money from people that I knew I was waking up up next to all these people. I didn't even remember their name. Like I just had so much shame about who I had become and how I couldn't fix myself in my life that, um, I ended up planning a date for my own suicide. Like that was really my, um, rock bottom point. And that was at the end of 2008 is when I hit that rock bottom. Okay, so you actually got to the point of planning your suicide. I used to volunteer as the person who answered the phone of the Suicide and Crisis Counseling Center. One of the steps to gauge the seriousness of the matter was to figure out how far along people were in planning it, or was it just thoughts that were going through their mind? To have the plan is obviously not a good sign. So what changed for you between then and now? Yeah. Um, well, when I chose a date to take my own life, it was a Sunday night. There was so much anguish and self-hatred. And uh, I can't even tell you like the depth of despair that I was in before finally coming to that. You know, it wasn't just out of the blue, like, oh, hey, you know what? I think I'll kind of knock myself out of here. It was just, it had been spiraling and snowballing for years to come to that point. And it was a Sunday night that I said, you know what? I'm finally going to do it this coming Saturday. 
you know, six days later, I was going to take my own life. And the reason that I said six days later was because I didn't want anybody to be inconvenienced by me taking my own life. So I wanted to make sure that all my stuff was in order, my work, you know, everything at work, I wouldn't be leaving anybody behind. You know what I mean? Like it was, there was some sort of responsibility that I felt um, that I didn't want anybody having to pick up my slack by me doing this. So, um, but that Sunday night, I felt such amazingly deep despair. I didn't feel like I could make it until that next Saturday. So what I did was I thought, you know what, I keep drinking and I know I'm not an alcoholic or anything, but I thought, you know what, let me go to like one of those meetings. I was living in Santa Monica out in California and there are recovery centers for drug and alcohol addiction everywhere. Like it's a, it's a prominent, wonderful community out there. And I thought, you know what, let me take myself to one of those meetings and see what real alcoholics are like. And then I could feel a little better about my own drinking. And that might make me feel better enough to make it till Saturday. And I know where we are now, you know, in a healthy mindset and stuff, that kind of thinking is just kind of like, where did that even come from? Like, how did that even make sense at the time? But that to me in that moment made sense to me, because it was like, I know that I'm going to take my own life, I know I'm going to get out of here. And I want to get stuff in order before I do that. And I cannot feel better in any other way than to try and look at people whose lives may be even messier than my own. Like that's really where I was thinking. So I went to a couple of these addiction recovery meetings and Melissa, I would sit in the back of the room and hear these people in the front talking. And this one guy was fully declaring himself an alcoholic and he had never gotten it. You know, he had never driven drunk. And I thought to myself, like, I drive drunk just to get to work in the morning, <laughs> you know, like because I'm drinking four shots of vodka before I even, you know, before I even leave the house. Like, how is it possible that... I don't think I belong here and this person is sharing what they're sharing. So there was something kind of opening in my mind and there were a couple women that I would see consistently that just that week, just those six days, I was you know going to the center and these women would sit down next to me. They didn't ask my name. They didn't ask me any questions, but they would just hold my hands and my, the tears are just, you know, my hair was just so messed up from all the tears that I was crying and they would just brush my hair gently away from my face and hold my hands. And that was it. And I will tell you the, the, the care and love that I felt from those women was so amazingly much more powerful than any of the guys that I, you know, had woken up next to over all of those years. Like, I couldn't believe the amount of love that I was feeling. And so when I got to that Saturday date, it just felt like, you know what, maybe there's something in this room that could be here for me. I don't know what yet, but maybe there's something. And I kept telling myself, like, you know what, if there's nothing, I can always just kill myself tomorrow. Because by Saturday, everything will be cleaned up in my life. If I don't do it Saturday, I can always do it Sunday, or I could do it Monday. You know, it just, it felt like, I don't have to do it now because I'm not sure what these women have to say. And I'm a little bit curious about what's going on in this room, but I can always just kind of keep my finger near the game over button. And that gave me solace in a weird, really unhealthy way. You know, it was kind of like, well, if I can hit that button at any point and get out of here, then I will do this and I can always just do it tomorrow. And so um, I went on for weeks for, I don't know, eight or 10 weeks. I can't remember at this point, but for several weeks, that was my motto is I can always just kill my myself tomorrow. I can always just kill myself tomorrow. And during those weeks, I didn't quit drinking. And nobody told me that I needed to quit drinking because if they would have told me that, I would have been out there in a heartbeat, you know, so I was going drunk to all of these, um, this center and these meetings and everything. And everybody was just very, very nice to me. And 
in December of um, 2008, right around that time, I was at that addiction recovery center and there was a woman who stood up in front of the room and told her story of overcoming addiction. And she was so cute. She had her little haircut and she had her, you know, she was so comfortable sitting in a room full of like 60 people talking and telling her story. Her little, you know, she had her legs crossed and her little leg was swinging, you know, just like so comfortable in herself and in her body. And I thought like, how on earth is the woman that is telling the story that she's telling be the same person who's so happy and comfortable inside her own skin? Like, I just felt like I needed to talk to her. And that woman ended up being the game changer of my entire life. She became my coach and mentor to lead me through the addiction recovery program, but not only through that, but just my life kind of like my coach and counselor. And it was kind of on her watch that all of my spiritual, um, transformation took place and, and, um, and the amazing, um, you know, kind of experiences that I had with meditating kind of all started with her. It, it was that I knew was, was the biggest turning point for me. How long did it take until you accepted that you were an alcoholic? It was really when I started talking with her that, you know, because I kept thinking to myself, like, eh, I don't know if this program's for me. I don't, I don't know that I'm really going to belong here. And when I would meet with her one on one, I call her Grace because that was really what she was to me. And um, when I would meet with Grace, she was like, you know, she she told me that in the beginning that I was so just crazy in my mind that I wasn't ready to work on even the first step of the addiction recovery program. She was like, you're not even ready for that because you can't admit or even see that you could, that you are an alcoholic as everybody else can so clearly see it. Like you can't see that yet. She's like, we're not even going to start on the steps of the recovery program because you're not even at the baby step of step one. What you need to do is learn to meditate. And I remember looking at her like, um, really? <laughs> I'm going to meditate. Like I'm going to sit still and something's going to happen. <laughs> I have no idea why you're telling me that I'm going to need to meditate. And I, I told her, I was like, shouldn't I be like writing letters and not mailing them or burning them or hitting on pillows with baseball bats? And, um, and she just looked at me and she was like, your way doesn't seem to be working. Why don't you try mine? And that really stopped me because she had a point, you know, I had done all of these things in therapy and all of this writing and all of this, you know, like all of these different modalities to try and heal what I was feeling inside of myself, but I had never tried meditating. And I thought maybe, you know, it would be cool or, you know, there was something interesting about meditation, but it didn't seem like it would be anything that would change my life or become the basis of the way that I live my day-to-day -day life. And so um, since meditation was the only thing that I hadn't tried, and because I was so, you know, just nuts that I couldn't try any, you know, I wasn't ready to do anything else at the time, I just asked her, like, okay, you know, what what do I do if I want to meditate? You know, I just thought it was ridiculous to try it, but at the same time, you know, she had a point, it was something I'd never done before. And so her specific instruction to me was to sit still every morning for 20 minutes and focus on my breathing. And I thought, well, uh, it's really not going to do anything, but it also doesn't sound hard. So I'll do it. So my, the contingency of me working with her is that I had to agree to quit drinking. I didn't have to say that I was an alcoholic yet, but I had to quit drinking. And so she, you know, I would check in with her every single day, you know, I didn't drink today or whatever like that. And so the first days that I started meditating were also the first days that I quit drinking. And so I was going through withdrawal symptoms. So when I sat that first morning, 
morning and put my timer on to meditate for 20 minutes, I sat still and I didn't realize I don't, I didn't really ever sit still before then. You know, I either had a TV on or a movie on or music on, or I was talking to somebody or, you know, whatever, but I never really just sat still in silence. So I put the um, timer on for 20 minutes and um, my body, because of the stillness that I wasn't used to, and because of the withdrawal from the alcohol addiction, I just started shaking and sweating. And it was really sort of uncontrollable. Like my body was just like tremoring and and just sweating and sweating, like sweating out toxins, or I don't even know what the sweat was all about, but that was happening to me. So it was kind of like in the fetal position because it was very uncomfortable in my head to kind of sit up straight. So um, after about three minutes of the 20, uh, you know, it was supposed to be for 20 minutes. After about three minutes, it became intolerable for me to sit still anymore. It just physically, emotionally, mentally, I could not sit still any longer. So I looked at my timer and I saw that I still had 17 minutes left. And I was like, I, I don't care because I can't do this right now. You know, I was like, you know, just put it to the side. And a couple hours later, it nagged at me. Like, ugh, all she told me to do was 20 minutes. I only did three. Like, maybe I could set it for 17 and see if I could make 20 minutes total, you know? So I sat down again and I tried it again. I put it on for 17 minutes. And again, at that three-minute mark, after shaking and sweating, I turned over the timer and I saw only three minutes had gone by. So what happened was for those few days, I did like three minutes several times a day so that I could make the 20 minute total. And when I told her that when I was checking in, I thought she'd be mad at me. You know, I thought she'd be like, what's wrong with you? You can't even sit still for 20 minutes. She just said, whatever you can do is great. Just don't drink and just keep it consistent. This is really important because so many people put pressure on themselves for not meditating right like they have to go for 20 minutes or they have to meditate twice a day. I have a few favorite meditation apps, but one of those is 10% Happier. And their whole stitch is that you only need one minute a day. You can obviously go beyond that, but first of all, you have to start somewhere. And second of all, even just that disruption of the natural flow of mind can be hugely powerful because... Let's be honest, we're all human and we have that tendency to spiral to the negative. Whether it's three minutes, one minute, a walking meditation, or even just meditating in line at the grocery store. The important thing is to just bring that extra level of awareness to your thoughts, your state of mind, however feels right for you. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth, and as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. 
But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's what I did for the first few weeks. That's all I did was, well, for the first week, it was just shaking and sweating in the fetal position. And after the, you know, detox kind of worked its way through my system, it was more about just trying to sit still and not go crazy for those three minutes. And after I would say um, maybe four weeks or so, I got to the point where I didn't really think that the meditation was doing anything, but I also didn't mind it. So four weeks into it, I was feeling sort of neutral towards it. And at the eight week mark, I had an experience coming out of my meditations, what in what I can only call a state of higher consciousness. And I'm going to describe this experience, but I also want to say that it wasn't because I was doing the steps of the program. I wasn't eating particularly healthy. Like I had just quit drinking. So I was eating potato chips and Oreos for breakfast. Like it didn't matter. It was like whatever I could do just not to drink. So I was eating not well. I had not done any, you know, I hadn't gone back and made amends to anybody that I'd hurt. I hadn't had any sort of deep conversations yet. All I had done was three minutes here, three minutes there, you know, six, seven times a day for the past eight weeks. And when I came out of one of my meditations, and this is early in February of 2009, I was in my apartment sitting on the edge of my couch. And I remember opening my eyes and looking around and there were no words in my head, you know, like the voice that's, oh, it's always there. There was just no voice. And I, I never even knew it was possible not to have the voice going at all times, you know? So as I was looking around my apartment, I saw like there was this thin layer of dust, you know, on the bureau and it was exquisite. It was just beautiful. It was exactly how it should be. And I couldn't believe people weren't knocking down my doors to take pictures of it because it was so beautiful. Like it was just absolutely everything was perfect. And there was, it, it was like, I was seeing a depth to things that I never even knew was there. And as I went about my day in this kind of state of higher consciousness, I was, my, my conscious awareness was hovering above and slightly behind my body. So it's kind of like there was this big me, right? Like my, my source essence that was hovering above, but tethered to my body, almost like my body was a little finger puppet. And it was really obvious to me at the time that the big me part of me was actually at least 95%, if not more of my entire self. And this little me, my little body and personality and ego, that's like less than 5%. And as I was having this realization, I, re I was kind of noticing like, I don't think anybody knows this. Like we're all running around in our little tiny bodies with our little tiny personalities. And it is just so not where it's at. It is so not everything that's real. It's not even 5% of what's real. So that was like so eye-opening to me. Hold that thought. The Mind Love Podcast is supported by CastBox, the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on iOS and Android. 
CastBox has over 50 million free episodes that more than 13 million users download and listen to wherever, whenever. CastBox has also pioneered a brand new way to search. All you have to do is enter a keyword or phrase and CastBox will search all show titles and transcripts of every single episode to deliver exactly what you're looking for. So head over to your app store, download CastBox, and try it for yourself today. While you were in that state of higher consciousness, what were the biggest things that you learned or came to understand? One is that there's no such thing as time. And it was just so laughable that we think time is real. And I can understand why we think time is real, but it's, it doesn't have an essence to it. There's no such thing as time. And the second thing was that in my little human personality body, um, that is only a mirror reflection of how well I am allowing the, I call it big me, the big me energy to flow. If I am 100% allowing it, everything in my life and in my body is going to reflect that. It's going to be full of love. It's going to be full of health and abundance and peace and all of those things. But if I'm pinching myself off from that greater, you know, kind of source, then I'm going to notice sickness or, um, you know, lack of abundance and those sorts of things in my relationships and in my my financial status and all those sorts of things. So it was so obvious to me, no such thing as time and that everything in my physical world, my body, my relationships, my financial situation without exception is a mirror reflection of the relationship I have with that, which is greater than myself. And so that state of consciousness lasted for about three days. And the only reason I even came out of it is because the little voice in my head started going, I wonder how long this is going to last. I wonder how long we'll be floating above ourselves. I wonder how long. And then as soon as that voice started up, it was like, you know, right back in my body. But that experience to me was completely unforgettable. And I like to emphasize that it wasn't because I went on a big retreat to a different country and extra, you know, I was going to work every day. I wasn't particularly eating healthy, you know, like there was no external circumstance that I was manipulating or trying to achieve that I, that I sort of stumbled into the state of consciousness. It was only the stillness I was finding for three minutes, several times a day. And so from that, I realized, and also my coach Grace realized, like there's something to these little three minute meditations. And so eventually they sort of evened out to be three minutes, three times a day. And so that's the basis of what I call three by three meditation. And I've spoken to, um, you know, like cell biologists and neuroscientists and self-help gurus and just, you know, kind of sharing with them, like, I'm just doing these three minute breaks several times a day. And I have an understanding of why and how it is so powerful in our brains and in our, you know, in the hardwiring of our beings to take these breaks several times a day and how extraordinarily effective it can be to changing the constitution of our entire beings. You know, it's so powerful. Recently, I've become super interested in these stories about people who have caught a glimpse into these states of higher consciousness. And what's reassuring to me is that they're all very similar. One such experience is in a book that I just completed and highly recommend. It's called Dying to Be Me by Anita Morjani. Her glimpse into the truth of the universe occurred in a near-death experience. These same universal truths became apparent to her, and when her body was revived, it actually cured itself of cancer within several days' time. Her account does back up Dina's statement that our experience here on the physical plane is a reflection of that connection to higher consciousness or spirit. 
Dina, when you are still in that state of higher consciousness, you're experiencing gratitude for everything around you and you feel like you're floating. What was it like interacting with other people? The, you know, it's interesting because when I was in that state, it didn't feel amazing or extraordinary. It felt like that was normal, but it felt like I was in on the real normal, if you know what I mean. So I wasn't running around being like, oh my gosh, you guys have to be in this state. Like it wasn't extraordinary because for the way that I guess my spiritual muscle had been worked for those three minutes, you know, several times a day for eight weeks, it was just like the next step of stepping into, you know what I mean? So I didn't have this feeling that it was extraordinary until I came out of it. And then I was like, oh dang, that was really cool, you know? But while I was in it, it just felt like I was, and I knew I was in a depth of, uh, normal is not the word, but the, a depth of the realism of life that I knew many people weren't privy to. And as I would focus on something, like even at work, the phone would ring or, you know, talking to the people that I worked with, like my attention would be so fully absorbed. Like I had this extraordinary ability to focus and to be efficient with stuff, you know, cause a lot of times we're not efficient because we're not focused. We're, we're getting distracted with this and where was I and all this stuff. And so we have a lack of efficiency or productivity. And it was just like, everything I put my mind on was an extraordinary focus. Everything I touched, you know, even when I was brushing my teeth, I remember it was like, it was almost, almost too like sensitive, you know, it was like really pleasurable. It felt like a massage when I was brushing my teeth and like even the clothes that touch my body every single day, it was like, I could really feel the fabric, you know, on my arms and on my legs. And it, you know, it was like this heightened awareness thing. And as I was focusing on people, all I could see was the essence of love inside of them. Even if they were just complaining at me or talking at me or they they had anger directed at me. I just, I couldn't really see any of that. Or, you know, when it, when a child is having a, a tantrum about something and, um, or, you know, scared of the big purple monster in the closet that doesn't exist, you wouldn't be like, wow, what a dumb kid or any, it's just like, it's so endearing that they think that something is real that isn't. And that's how I felt when I was interacting with people that were, you know, maybe not so happy or upset about something or whatever. I was like, oh my gosh, like all that's really real is the essence of love and the essence of peace. That is all that's really real. And it's kind of cute and endearing that we get so caught up in all of this other stuff because it's just so not real, like the purple monster in the closet. But it's, it's not a place of being wrong or anything like that. It's just, it's just where you are. And I understand the kids that get scared of that. It's where you are and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like, wow, I could really see that most, if not all of the things that we get riled up and upset in our lives about are, there's just no essence to it. You know what I mean? The only essence is of goodness and of love and of peace. And I was, as I would look at people and just have my entire 100% of my focus on them, it was like the, the finger puppet, like their bodies was doing whatever their bodies was doing, but I could kind of see through that into that, that heart, that soul essence energy, you know, and I've not had a three day experience like that, you know, at all since I've been that, but I have glimpses when I'm talking to people where I can be in that like heart space or whatever. So it's, it's something that you can't forget when something like that happens and you don't chase it and try to reachieve it, but you remember it, it, you know, it's like if somebody tells you a secret of how a magic trick works, that that magic trick is not magic anymore to you. And you can't refool yourself into, oh, my gosh, how did they do that? Because you understand how it works. And so that's how it is 
if something upsets me or if I get stuck in traffic or I'm late for something or whatever, like little annoyances of life, I, I can't get as upset as I used to about them because I understand the bigger picture now. Like it just doesn't have that. It's not that I don't have emotions anymore. I do. And I feel them fully and they're not always happy and joyful and all of that for the most part they are. But you know, like it's about being present with whatever the emotion is that you're feeling. And also recognizing that when we're feeling something that is less than peace or love or that inner freedom inside of ourselves, all we have to do is just recognize, like, wait a minute, I just got to open that tap so that, you know, open the faucet so that that big me energy and essence and, and intuitive guidance can flow a little bit more. Because a lot of times we get so caught up in what we think is wrong and how we want to fix it that we're we're focused and we're facing the wrong way than if we just turn around and remember this is already inside of us. And, you know, we can, if we can just let go of the upset that's going on and remember, it's just a symptom, not a problem itself, but a symptom of, you know, just how connected or disconnected we are in the moment. We can reframe it like that. Then, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying I can switch it all right away and, you know, I'm perfect and extraordinary and, and amazing at all that. But I do have that knowledge that that is my work. That is my work going forward day to day, moment to moment. Okay. So you verified your method with neuroscientists. What is it that is so effective about these shorter bursts of meditation, three minutes, three times a day? Well, I love um, sharing about this stuff because I had had the experience without knowing the reason behind it or the science behind it, right? So it's kind of like the first person to discover whatever healthy miracle food or 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 plant, you know, that's going to heal. It's like, oh, wow, that was kind of accidental. Didn't even know. And then you study it and you realize like why it was effective. And so when I wrote my book and I'm writing, you know, how I went from hell to happy in nine minutes a day, you know, three by three, it occurred to me like, wow, that kind of sounds like four minute abs, you know, like it, it doesn't have like a realistic ring to it. It feels like, yeah, right. You can change your life in three minutes at a time or whatever. And I, and I, I reached out to um, Dr. Bruce Lipton and he wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. You know, I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed, because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day. And I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted. Like this is how it's always been. Those types of days used to last months. And now they're pretty few and far between. And they rarely last more than a few hours. But it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than. But if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I haven't read his books yet, but I know he is internationally recognized as bridging the gap between science and spirit, which is something that I absolutely love. But he brought the idea that genes and DNA can be manipulated by a person's beliefs. Yeah, he's extraordinary as a human being and as a scientist, just a wealth of knowledge and also just a wonderful heart and soul. And so I reached out to him and I interviewed him and um, I told him like the first thing we got on the phone and I said, listen, I've had these healing experiences, you know, like weight loss in my body, my cholesterol, healing in my relationships, you know, all of this stuff has happened to me. And it's because of the focus that I'm doing in these three minute bursts, um, three times a day. And in the beginning, you know, I was doing six, seven times a day. Now I'm doing three times a day. And and this is what's happening. Like, could you explain to me why this is so powerful? And he laughed and he, he like, he immediately burst out laughing. He goes, you are actually doing one of the most effective things you could possibly do to change your brain and change your rewiring, you know? And he said that what's really happening is that our subconscious mind is, is kind of like a cassette tape. So it's just like <clears throat> playing and playing and playing over and over and over. And it's largely the same things we were thinking yesterday and even a decade ago and maybe 25 years ago. It's just this, all of these tens of thousands of thoughts a day that are just rote and they're just repeating themselves and repeating themselves. And most of the time we don't even know that they're doing what they're doing. And so when we can several times a day, introduce little cuts to that tape. So we're just like, we're stopping it. It's like if water is flowing down um, a stream, right? And you want to change the course of where the water is going. And little by little, you dig a little bit of a ditch and a little more of a ditch the next day and a little more of a ditch. Pretty soon, that second avenue that you're digging is going to be the path of least resistance for the water. It's going to become the new most natural way for that water to flow. And that's really what how he explained. Uh, well, I made up the water analogy, but he was explaining with the cassette tape thing. It's like you're putting these little cuts into your subconscious programming that you've had for years and years. And one day it's just going to all snap and break and it's just not going to be your reality anymore. Like you, you keep, and I love that analogy of like the way that the water goes, you know, it's like just one thing at a time, one day at a time, three minutes at a time. And as you keep it consistent, it becomes a new neural pathway in your brain. It literally rewires your brain. And I've seen from different sources that it's like, I don't know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of thinking a pure focused thought 
the neural pathways start to reflect that in your brain. It's measurable, scientifically measurable. You know, I think that any method of meditation that works for somebody is extraordinary. If people sit for two hours in the morning or 20 minutes in the morning and that is powerful for them, I am all for it. You know, three by three only exists because I, I couldn't follow directions, really. You know, like I, I don't think three by three is better or or anything that any other method that's powerful for more people. But I, I do have that understanding that the more frequently that we interrupt the old subconscious programming, the more effective we can be at changing the thought patterns that are really the basis of what's happening in our exterior lives. I had an experience that ties to this whole disruption of subconscious thought patterns. Last year, I took a course on goal setting, and the first step was identifying my limiting beliefs. I had to carry around a notebook and write them down when they came up. I noticed how sneaky limiting beliefs can be. One of my favorite books, Psycho-Cybernetics, says that we spend three hours a day replaying one small occurrence or worrying about something that's going to happen in the future. For example, you might get in an argument with your friend. You picture what you say to her. You picture what she says to you back. Suddenly you're having this internal dialogue and none of these things are actually coming from the other person. They're coming from your own fears and your own worries and the negative things that you think about yourself or that you think the other person thinks about you. But guess what? They're not real. Well, I started realizing my own limiting beliefs were directing these imaginary conversations I was having with people in my head that never even came to fruition. And this is just one of the many ways that your own limiting beliefs sneak up on you. It also sneaks up on you in procrastination, fear of starting, and even in limiting the love that you will allow into your life. Well, this goal setting course had me writing these down when they came up, which made me ultra aware. And I started to notice thought patterns that I didn't previously realize existed. The more awareness I brought to them, the more I was able to stop them in their tracks so they didn't actually affect the outcome of my next actions. Instead, my next actions became crossing them out and replacing them with something more empowering. And now, while I don't go as far as carrying around a notebook to write this down, I try to become aware when I am in thought loops, whether I'm driving or walking or standing in line, to just stop and be in stillness for a minute and recognize those thought loops for what they are rather than a piece of me. Yeah. Oh, I could totally see the power in that. I think that's amazing. Your book talks about the importance of surrender. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, surrender to me, it really just means totally letting go. And because so many times we are trying to manipulate an outcome, we're so attached to where we think things should be. And we try to work this or work that or manipulate this and manipulate that. And I don't mean in a bad way, not in a sneaky way, but just in a, ooh, what if I try this? Or what if I try that? Like we're using our minds to try and solve our problems or fix our lives when really intuitive guidance is way more effective and more powerful at doing that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that's where quantum leaps can happen rather than the little measured steps that can, that can come when we use our logical practical minds. And so for me, surrender, um, it, it's all summed up in one of the things, the very first thing that the woman I'm calling Grace um, taught me. She taught me um, what she calls, uh, or what's referred to as the set-aside prayer. And I didn't even 
believe in God when I first started meditating. So it's not like I was praying to a God or anything, but just the, just the sentiment of it. It's, um, enable me to set aside everything I think I know for an open mind and a new experience. And at first I wanted to say like, what do you mean set aside what I think I know? I know that I know what I know. You know, like I just had this, what do you mean set aside what I think I know? And Grace explained it to me. It's like, she's like, I'm not telling you to, to get rid of every belief or experience you've ever had, but she's like, you need to put them to the side because all of this stuff and all of these things that we think we know are, even if they're not wrong, they are in the way of something more powerful that could come through. So it's just sort of clearing the way. It's not getting rid of them. It's just taking focus off of them and saying, you know, if there's another way to do this that I can't see right now, I'm open and willing to see it. And so that's where surrender started coming um, for me was just in saying, you know, like I'm open to setting aside the way I think you know, like I think I should be writing letters and burning them or mailing, you know, hitting, hitting billows with baseball bats. Like that's what I think I know I should do. But let me set that aside because this woman in front of me has an idea that maybe is better than mine. Let me set that aside so that I can learn hers. And surrender to me is you can't surrender like 98% or 5%. Like you're either surrendered or you're not. And if you feel any sort of hint of little angst, it's not a full true surrender. When you are fully surrendered, there is this, it is just this dropping of this weight. It is, it is this feeling of an absolute thorough, complete 110% letting go. And when you feel that, that is when the space is created for that higher wisdom and intuitive guidance to kind of act through you. And Reaching the the place of surrender didn't happen for me sort of overnight or all in one foul swoop, but it was built on these little tiny bursts of meditation of this silence and, and stillness inside of myself several times a day so that I could kind of just clear a little more, clear a little more, clear a little more. And then, you know, one day it's it's just gone and you have that openness and that's when um, higher guidance can come in. We just have to let go of the what we think we know we're doing in order to be shown a completely different, amazingly extraordinary way. Okay, so you said when you were meditating, it was kind of like a prayer, but you didn't believe in God. In your book, you mention reinventing God. So what exactly does that mean? Well, reinventing God was, I had grown up um, Catholic. So I had this, and I'm not saying that all Catholics believe like I believe, but I believed that um, God was outside of myself, more powerful than me, and way more powerful than me, knew everything that I was doing, and had the power to help everybody in their lives. But I always felt guilty asking God for stuff because I was like, oh my gosh, there's poor people, there's homeless people. Like, why am I going to ask for a good grade? Or why am I going to ask for something that's, you know, sort of a, a first world problem when there's people that are struggling with real problems? You know, like I always felt like God wasn't as accessible or I shouldn't bother God too much. And when I, what I talk about when I say reinventing God, when I had that um, extraordinary experience of those three days in higher consciousness, it was it, it occurred to me like, this is God. This is what God is. God is that higher essence, that intuitive guidance, that source of peace and love that underlies and, and is the basis of building absolutely everything. So to me, God now is, I analogize it to like the sunshine, right? Like if, 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 
if all of the people in the world decided at all the same time, we're all going to lay out in the sun and burn ourselves to a crisp, the sun would not be diminished because everybody is demanding uh, suntan all at the same time. You know, that wouldn't diminish the sun and it also wouldn't diminish anybody from being able to get their share of the sun. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we could all do that at the same time. It wouldn't diminish the sun and none of us would get in each other's way. There's plenty of sunshine coming from the sun and plenty of room for us all to do that at the same time. So there's no limit to that. And that's really how I feel the God essence is now. So everybody who wants to have access to God, it's always there. It's about opening it up, turning on that faucet, listening to that signal, tuning in to that broadcast, you know, however you want to say it. So, so for me now, it's this infinite, always flowing energy, but it's also not, you know, I don't feel like the sun is efforting to get us sunshine. It's just being the sun and sunshine benefits us. And so it's like the God source energy is just being the God source energy and we can choose to tap into it or we don't have to tap into it. And it's okay whether we do or whether we don't, like it's really okay. But when, once we learn to do that, it kind of becomes like, oh my gosh, why would I ever want to live any other way? This is, this is extraordinary. <laughs> Here's something I can totally relate to. I've spoken about it before, but I was raised very Christian. There was something about the Christian beliefs that felt more disempowering to me. For my mom, that's a completely different story. Everything about the way the Christian religion is laid out feels very connecting and empowering for her, but for me, not so much. What's also interesting to note is that religions in different parts of the world tend to balance out what they get from their culture or society. And what I mean by that is that in Western society, we have a democracy. So it's interesting that we have a more one God belief system, whereas a lot of more monarch societies tend to have multiple gods. It's the yin to the yang. In the end, I believe that just like with everything in life, you need to find what works for you, what empowers you. Given that so many people struggle with these 20 minute meditations, I'm guessing that the three by three meditation method could be pretty accessible to most people out there. And your method and book were endorsed by Jack Canfield, author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. How did you become connected with him? Well, Jack is actually the reason that I have a book to begin with. You know, like he has been one of the most motivating forces behind any of this. I went on a Jack Canfield retreat um, a year or two before I wrote my book. And um, I just, I actually didn't even really know who he was. I had just gotten a random email and I was like, do I want to go on a Neil Donna Walsh retreat or a Jack Canfield retreat? And it was more because I just had never, I hadn't been on a retreat. And, you know, it was like a year or two into my meditation and I just felt like I wanted wanted to grow with it. And I wanted to do, you know, and so I ended up going on this um, Jack Canfield retreat and I had brought some of my writings and I had just written, it became chapters in the book, but I didn't know that it was going to be a book at the time. I just, you know, something, it was like, well, just why don't you bring your writing? And um, I, while we were at the retreat, I said, Hey, I brought some of my writing with me. Would it be okay if I shared it with you? And he's reading it and he's reading a few pages and he looks over at me and he's like, did you bring any more? And I was like, well, yeah, I have a whole ton right here. He's reading it. And he goes, did you bring more than this? And I was like, well, yeah. And he keeps reading it. And he goes, this is really raw. And um, it has like a compellingness to it. Like, I want to keep reading it. Your story is really, you're telling it in a, in a way that I think could really help people. He's like, have you thought about turning it into a book? And I was like, well, 
Not really. I mean, I don't know how to write a book and that's all I really have to say. You just read it. Like that's, that's all my words. <laughs> you know. And he was like, well, if you leave this retreat and I get you an editor and, you know, a, a person that can help coach you so that you can kind of do this, would you want to do that? And I was like, um, sure. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess so. You know, it was kind of like a little bit of an accidental thing. And Jack was one of the first people, like when the book came together and I was emailing it to him and he, he knew right away, he was like, this is, I, I want to, you know, be behind this book and all of that. And so, you know, he checks in on me once in a while, I'll get messages from him or little emails from him and have, you know, check in phone calls with him every once in a while. He just really believes in three by three and was such, um, you know, like, not like I talk to him every day or anything like that. You know, it's not, it's not that, but it was just to have somebody who is so successful, believe in me and share their resources with me, gave me that confidence. I didn't even know that I wanted to write a book. You know, if you would have told me 10 years ago, oh, you're going to run and write a book and, you know, stand in front of people on stage and tell everybody how you were a drunk and a thief and a liar, I'd be like, yeah, I don't even want that. I don't even want to write a book. You know, like if you would have told me the 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 path that working with him launched me onto, of you know, I would have said no thanks. That's not what I really think I want. But him being able to hold that vision for me and provide me with, you know, a support system and resources in order to get it in place was really the I don't know. Well, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't have written a book without knowing him, but it really was the the force behind me doing what I do today. For listeners interested in starting their own three by three meditation method, what tips do you have for them? This is true for three by three or for anything, you know, even if you want to get back into going to the gym or painting on a regular basis or whatever it is. Um, it's really about not having a, hey, this is my day one of the rest of my life, you know, that whole New Year's resolution mentality, I think sometimes backfires, because as soon as we fall off the wagon with it or something, it becomes a failure, and it has all of these things to it. So the the first thing I would say is make it you know, measurable, take seven days at a time and just commit to playing full out for seven days at a time. So if you're going to start a three by three practice or whatever you want to start, just commit to playing full out, but only for seven days at a time, because that's manageable and measurable. And you can do that, you know, you can stick to it there. And the other thing with making like a three by three practice is putting reminders in your calendar or in your phone so that, um, you know, if you forget, and it doesn't mean drop everything and meditate as soon as the reminder goes off, it means it's a memory jogger. It's just like, oh, yeah, let me see where where my afternoon meditation will fit in, you know, like those sorts of things. And then also um, in starting a practice is using a timer, because a lot of times we sit down, especially if it's only for three minutes, and we think, okay, well, it's 1258 right now, I'll stop at 101, you know, and, and we're kind of peaking. And it's like, wait, did I start at 1255 or 1256? And we get completely distracted by trying to figure out how long we've been sitting there and where we have to be next. So if you put a timer on and turn it upside down, then you just trust that the bell will bring you out of it. And so you can lose yourself and have full focus in the meditation at that time. So those are just a few little tips, I guess, to get you started. That's a great tip because setting a timer releases one more duty from our subconscious. Kind of like with our to-do list. When we're keeping a bunch of things in the back of our mind, they cause us stress. When we write them all down, even if we don't plan to get to them right away, just that act releases from our subconscious and we're able to focus better on what we're doing right now. So for listeners who are resonating with this and your three by three method of meditation, where can they find out more about you? 
the main website is my name, dinaproctor.com. And um, you can also do Madly Chasing Peace, which is the name of the book, madlychasingpeace.com. It all points to the same place. And then you can find out all the links to everything that I do. I try to keep it all on one, one place on that website. As always, I'll have all of these links in our show notes at mindlove.com slash 021. One of my biggest takeaways from Dina's method is finding what works for you. I mentioned earlier in this episode that I just finished reading Dying to Be Me by Anita Morjani. In her book, she mentions how much we're all trying to fit into these molds of these pre-built patterns that other people have created that worked for them. The problem with this can be that we're ignoring our own needs or we feel like a failure when the idea of a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation retreat sounds like the worst thing in the world. But that doesn't mean you're a failure or you'll never reach enlightenment. We're all on our own path. And the important thing for me, at least for now, is finding what helps me connect with those deepest, highest parts of myself. If you didn't get the memo at the beginning of this episode, I want to remind you to sign up for the Morning Mind Love. You'll get short daily emails to remind you of your own beauty, worth, and power so that you can start each day with a positive mindset and keep your vibes up between episodes. So just head to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage or text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. Lastly, I want to thank Ashley L., my listener of the week, once again, for your super encouraging email. I love hearing from all of my listeners, and your email made my day. And to the rest of you, thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 